0: Please be seated. Good evening to you. Isaiah chapter 60 tonight, as we go through the Bible on Sunday nights, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Isaiah. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles. And if you wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to right where we're studying this evening. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. In chapter 60, we have a description by Isaiah. And here is um, what so much of the book of Isaiah is in, at the time of uh, Isaiah writing it, about 740 years before Jesus was born. Much of what Isaiah wrote concerning Jesus we now see is already fulfilled in his first coming. But Jesus is going to establish his kingdom on the basis of two comings, first establishing a spiritual kingdom in his first coming, and then a physical kingdom in his second coming, establishing the thousand-year reign of Christ, which will then give way, as if something could be better than that, it will give way to something better than that. And that is a new heaven and a new earth. And so when we come to chapter 60, now we're looking at prophecy that hasn't even been fulfilled yet in Jesus' first coming. This is something that is future yet uh, for each of us. So a little bit of history in advance. And it's a description of Jerusalem, God's favor that he's going to pour out upon the city of Jerusalem uh, during the kingdom age. When we get down into verses 19, 20, 21, and 22... When we compare those verses with uh, Revelation chapters 21 and uh, 22, we realize that this passage doesn't just have a fulfillment in the Jerusalem of the kingdom age, though it is it it applies to that, but it will have its ultimate fulfillment when all of this uh, heaven and earth will give way to a new heaven and a new earth, its fulfillment in the new uh, Jerusalem. So I... The Isaiah prophesies of the day. This was inconceivable to the Jews who were hearing it at the time, certainly when they read these words while they were in captivity in Babylon. But the Lord uh, declared through Isaiah that Jerusalem will ultimately become the center of worship for the entire world. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. Speaking of the great tribulation that will precede uh, Jesus' second coming, that seven-year period in which God pours his judgment out upon the earth, the Antichrist rules the world, he is possessed by the devil himself, It isn't just, you know, sometimes we read these uh, seal judgments, the bowl judgments, and... Uh, and and all in the book of Revelation and we think, oh look at the destruction Uh, the seas are turned to blood the rivers and so forth and the earthquakes and all of these things the worst thing about the tribulation period is going to be the spiritual darkness the removal of the influence of the Holy Spirit upon the earth through God's people it doesn't mean that people aren't going to get saved during the tribulation period they will in fact the numbers will be so great that they're uncountable but there will be a darkness a spiritual uh, darkness upon the earth that probably certainly in the united states we don't experience it we might have to go to another part of the the uh, world in order to experience but the whole earth will be covered by that The darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But here's this wonderful but, but the Lord will arise over you, speaking of Zion, of Jerusalem, and his glory will be seen upon you. And so the Lord is going to come in at the end of that tribulation period, come in his presence, bringing all of his light and all of his glory. The Gentiles shall come to your light. The thing that's going to make Jerusalem the wonderful place that it's going to be during the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, is not, um, you know, the buildings, the magnificence of the seven kind of hills that it's built upon, and so all of it's setting and everything. The single great... Uh, thing that will take people's breath away. The reason that they will long to come to Jerusalem in that period is not because of any buildings that get built or any of these things, but it is because Jesus is returned and He is going, He will be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. He will be the attraction of Jerusalem. I know we all want to go to Jerusalem, right? All want to visit Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is in our future. And sometimes we can so long to maybe take a trip to Israel, see Jerusalem that we can think, ah, Jerusalem is wonderful in its own right. Listen, it's not going to be much of a place during the Great Tribulation period. Uh, what makes Jerusalem the wonderful city that it is during that thousand-year reign is the fact that he is in there and all of his moral and spiritual uh, light and glory and the beauty of himself. And the Gentiles, verse 3, will come to your light and the kings into the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons from afar. Your daughters shall be nursed at your side. So The Gentile world is at this time going to come. Jesus is, uh, the Jews are going to worship him. They're going to realize that he is their promised Messiah. Better late than never, all right? A little late uh, getting into the game, but better late than never. That light's going to go on for them. But it's not going to just be the Jews. The Gentiles, non-Jews all around the world are going to long to come to Jerusalem in order to worship uh, the Lord, because he's the savior of both the Jew and the Gentile. And then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because of the abundance of the sea, uh, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. So the wealth of, of the Gentile nations all around the world will pour into Jerusalem. And uh, and we'll see here in just a moment. And the idea is to uh, bring it in as an expression of worship to the Lord, for the Lord to use the, whatever the Gentile nations. In the, the kingdom age, it's not going to be, hey, listen, I'm going to build a monument to myself. I'm going to build uh, the biggest skyscraper in Dubai or in New York City. Nobody's going to care about any of that stuff. The the highest use for money, it's true now, but we'll really know it then, will be to give it as an expression of worship to the Lord. I'm not setting you up for an offering. It's the truth about money now, but we'll know it even more then. And people will look at it, our needs are met, they're provided. Now what are we going to do here? We're going to bring our resources in, and we're going to, out of the expression of sacrifice here, we are going to, to give to the Lord because we love Him. And the adorning, is we're going to see, of the temple That will be, uh, built at that time. A temple will occur during the, be built during the millennial reign. We'll talk about that more when we get into Ezekiel. But, uh, so the Gentile world will come in. All of their wealth will pour in and all of it just to glorify and magnify the Lord. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. Hard to get a camel ride in Israel these days. Last few trips, it's hard because they're, um, they're edible and so people will eat them over there not the Jews because they're not kosher uh, but the Arabs will eat them and uh, sometimes they get stolen and all of these kind of things and so camels are going to fill the land bring your camera you'll get to walk out with them and get your picture and, and all of that So, but even here the, the variety of the Gentile nations the multitude of camels shall cover your land the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah all those of Sheba shall come interesting here We see the conflict between the Gentile nations, specifically Muslim-dominated nations, against Israel today. And here we see names, Midian, Ephah, Sheba. These are uh, Arab-controlled and, in some cases, Muslim-controlled areas today. All of those people from those lands. Islam is not going to conquer the world. Secular humanism is not going to conquer the world. Hinduism is not going to conquer the world. Buddhism is not going to conquer the world. Atheism is not going to conquer the world. Jesus is going to conquer the world. He's going to have the final say in things. He is going to rule and he's going to reign. And everybody who wants to worship is going to uh, worship him. And they shall bring to Jesus there in, that, uh, in Jerusalem, they shall bring him gold and incense. Now this is interesting because in his first coming, what did they do? The Magi brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In the kingdom age, no myrrh is brought to him, only gold and frankincense. Gold was a gift that was a gift for a king. That's why Jesus was brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh in his first coming. Gold was a gift that you gave to a king. It was an acknowledgment that he is a king. And then the frankincense was a... A uh, incense it was a fragrance that was used by the priests, uniquely used by them, and a fragrance that only the priest could wear in the Old Testament. It spoke of the fact that Jesus came into the world not only to be a king but to be a priest, and the book of Hebrews brings all of that out to us. But then he was given myrrh, and myrrh was heavily associated with death in those days, and so it spoke of the fact that Jesus had suffering in his future. And he would die. So it was an appropriate gift to give him in his first coming. But when in his second coming, the gifts that come, they solely honor him. And they celebrate him in the gold and the incense. They celebrate the fact that he is the king of the world, that he is the priest of the world, but no more uh, come to suffer. He suffered to die for our sins in his first coming. No more suffering and dying uh, again in his second coming. It's It's wonderful how specific the word of God is really, isn't it? And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. The flocks of Kedar uh, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebai, i ioth shall minister to you. Again, the Middle Eastern region is going to be given over to the worship of one person, and that's Jesus during the kingdom age. And they shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify uh, the house of my Glory. And so, uh, this beautiful season that is yet future for us in the kingdom age. As Christians, we will rule and reign with Jesus upon uh, the earth. And so, he comes now in uh, verse 8. And speaking of the fact that Israel's going to be regathered into her land, they're going to be spread all over the place during the Great Tribulation, at the halfway mark of the Tribulation period, that when the Antichrist sets up the abomination that causes desolation, the Jews will have considered the Antichrist to be their promised Messiah up to that point. At that point, they'll realize, we have been fooled. They will run for their lives, be scattered in all directions. The Antichrist will try to destroy them, and then following the Great Tribulation, they will be regathered back into uh, Israel and into Jerusalem. Those uh, who are these who fly like a cloud and like droves to their roosts, so at that time they 're talking i mean it 's poetic language, but we have planes now they didn 't have planes then, so coming in by the plane load perhaps i don 't know when the, i don 't know when all this is going to occur i don 't know when we 're going to get raptured out of here. It might be spaceships by then i don 't know. I'm ready to go any minute, by the way, uh, in the rapture. And surely the coastlands shall wait for me. The ships of Tarshish shall come to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he glorified you. And so the Jews will come by boat, by air, by every way, and be brought back into the land. Again, at that point, they will recognize him as their redeemer, and, uh, and, and again, as I said, better late than never. And then in uh, verse 10 uh, concerning... Uh, Jerusalem and the fact that it's going to enjoy tremendous peace, in fact, unbroken peace during that thousand-year reign of Christ, which, of course, is a a complete reversal of what they were in the middle of when Isaiah wrote this. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls. In other words, Gentiles are going to come to Jerusalem, and it will be their honor, their glory, their expression of worship to God uh, to build up the walls of the city, and their kings shall minister to to you, uh, and speaking of the Jewish people there in the city, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Again, I don't understand. There's an entire section of the body of Christ. I love them. I'm glad they're going to be in heaven one day. I'm glad to know them as my brothers and my sisters, but they teach that. God is done with Israel today, that the church has taken the place of Israel. I don't know what they do with huge sections of the Old Testament and uh, passages like this about speaking about God's interest yet in the Jews. Yes, they have to be saved like every other person needs to be saved in the world, and they need to be saved by putting their faith in Christ. But God still has a purpose. And a plan for them. Their coming to him will bring him a certain kind of glory. And uh, so he speaks about the fact, For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Therefore your gates, speaking of Jerusalem, will be open continually. They'll never have to close the gates. Do you realize that in the kingdom age, a thousand year reign, um, if, if you work in the home security or uh, uh, corporate security or computer security, you're out of job uh, at that time. But you will need a job at that time. This is all going to be about worshiping the Lord. So the city, the doors of the city will be kept open day and night simply because there'll be no threat to the city. If the, Jerusalem and the whole world will be safe. Uh, Jesus will rule as necessary with a rod of iron to make, uh, make uh, sure of it, we're told in Psalm 2. And they shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession and for the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish and those nations shall be utterly ruined and so any nation rising against Israel rising up against Jerusalem uh, and and in effect rising up against Jesus uh, they will be defeated uh, by Jesus the glory of Lebanon shall come to you. All of these nations that will bring their wealth uh, to uh, Jerusalem, continued description of it. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. What is the glory of Lebanon? The cypress. They were known for their woods. The cypress wood, the pine, the box tree together to beautify the place uh, of my sanctuary. So the wood that was required for building whatever needed to be built will need to be built there in Jerusalem. And I will make the place of my feet glorious, and also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall uh, prost- uh, prostrate, got to get that right, at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of, uh, of the Holy One of Israel. And so all of Israel's former... Um, Enemies, all of her current enemies today will one day, everything's going to be turned around. They will come and come in peace, eager to worship the Jewish Messiah, but the Savior, the, the Messiah who was born of the, uh, the lineage of the Jews, but as a Savior to the whole world. Everyone will be united together in their love for the Lord, their worship of the Lord, their acknowledgement of Him, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's the best way to unite a world, is around something that is, got to have something that is able to unify us, that is greater than all the things that can divide us. And Christ is that something uh, for the human heart. And that's exactly what's going to happen. In verse 15, uh, Isaiah continues to speak about the complete reversal that all of this is going to be to the current conditions of those who were in Israel uh, at the time in which Isaiah was there. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink the milk of Gentiles and the milk of the breasts of kings. And so just as a baby... Um, owes its nourishment and and all to the giving of the mother in that way, so to uh, the king's people in power of wealth, they will be eager to give their wealth for the adorning of the city of Jerusalem because, again, of their love for Christ. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so here is the reason for the love of Jerusalem, not just because of uh, it being a beautiful city where it's located and so forth, but because it is the site, it is the location where Jesus, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, uh, will rule. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will also make your officers' peace and your magistrates' righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. I just can't believe that this could be true one day. Violence shall no longer... Can you imagine having one day on planet Earth where there's no violence? No husband strikes his wife. Nobody shoots a stranger down in the street. Nobody robs anyone. Imagine... If we could feel that for one day or wake up in the morning and know today, I, it is impossible for me to be a victim of an act of violence, for peace, for us to be that sure of peace. And yet that's not going to mark but a single day of the kingdom age. That will mark the entire uh, thousand years. And so the beauty of, of it, the, uh, of the, Uh, of the age, of the city, of the whole world indeed in this regard uh, because of these other characteristics as well. Neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And so there's a link through those verses 17 and 18. He makes mention of peace and righteousness and salvation and praise. That's all that will be known in the world, is peace and righteousness and salvation And praise. And then the negatives that are listed there, they won't find expression during that age. There won't be violence. There won't be wasting, destruction, any of these kinds of things. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon uh, give light to you, but the Lord himself will be to you an everlasting light and your God, your glory. And so here we realize that there's something going to be glorious in this way concerning the kingdom age, but in terms of the fullest fulfillment of verse 19, that goes out beyond the thousand-year reign of Christ into the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, if you're confused a little bit by this, you gotta. everybody's got to hear it the first time or the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time, and then it starts to click, and then we understand it because it's important for us to understand it. Plus, I have a gift to confuse. And so what good would I do if I didn't confuse you a little bit? So, But we do know from the book of Revelation that when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible teaches that all of this creation that is touched by the sin of Adam and Eve, it's going to melt with a fervent heat. It's going to be destroyed. The whole atomic structure is just going to dissolve and give way to something altogether brand new. And we're told that Jesus himself will be the light of the new Jerusalem. I don't know a lot about it, except that whatever that light is, he is going to radiate everything and uh, and we see a glimpse of that, Isaiah, looking at it 740 years before Christ. And, uh, we will well, we'll see. When we all get there, we can say, oh, that's what it was. So it was a good thing you didn't speculate, Damien, because you would have been way off. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. How wonderful that will be for the whole world, for the Jewish people. Also, your people shall be righteous, and everyone is going to be righteous during the kingdom age, and uh, they shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it. In its time, and so the entire age everyone 's going to be marked by uh, righteousness, righteous living, but then they are also uh, the everybody 's lives are going to be marked by uh, great blessings from the lord it 's going to be wonderful, and as a christian uh, if you 're a christian you 've got reservations for all of that in chapter sixty one We, As we looked at this morning, we made the first three verses the focus of our study this morning, and so I'll refer you to that for a more in-depth handling of the passage. But the first three verses speak of the spirit that would be upon the coming Messiah. Again, this was spoken prophetically of the Messiah who was to come. 740 years before Jesus was born. We know that this passage applies to Jesus because early in his ministry, almost at the very beginning of his public ministry, following his water baptism by John the Baptist at the Jordan River, he makes his way up into his hometown in the city of Nazareth. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. He, was, he did not forsake the assembling together of the saints. You think, why is Jesus going to church? What can they tell him? You know what? How, how can he have deeper relationship with the Father than he already has? Well, he did it as an example for us. and so And to fulfill the Father's purposes. So he's in there, and this was the case in a synagogue in those days, but even to this day. There's a section of the service in a synagogue given over to the reading of the Scriptures. And typically, it's a systematic reading through the course of the year uh, through a significant part of the Old Testament. And so, on this Sunday, this gets read, or Saturday, oh boy. On this Saturday, this gets read, and then the next Saturday, this gets read, and so forth. And typically, they would hand you the scroll that would be set to a particular passage. Luke tells us in his account of this in Jesus' life, they hand him the scrolls, but he doesn't read the next passage. It says he found this passage, and then he read this passage out loud, and he declared to them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and before your eyes. And so we know that this refers... Everybody knew that it referred to the coming Messiah, but we know that it is fulfilled in Jesus himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the uh, Messiah declares. We remember when Jesus was water baptized by John the Baptist to begin his public ministry, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon him for him to receive the power that he would need for the fulfilling of his public ministry. We call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only in us as Christians, not only with us as Christians, omnipresent, but coming upon us to give us the power to be a witness. And so this same uh, experience, so to speak, came upon uh, Jesus. And if you think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if Jesus had the baptism of the Holy Spirit to begin his public ministry, how much more do we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's call upon our lives? And so the Spirit of the Lord, he said, is upon me just as occurred because the Lord has anointed me for what purpose? To preach good tidings to the poor and so forth. But the, the great, single great thing that Jesus did in his public ministry was to preach the gospel. The fact that, uh, as we saw this morning where Paul wrote about it in First Corinthians chapter 15, how that Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He came into human history not to raise the dead, uh, not to heal, not to give sight to the blind, not supremely uh, to cleanse the leper, as wonderful as all of these things were. If he did all of those things and he did not provide us with a victory over sin and over death, what good would it have been? It would have been like a a bit of a, a highlight in human history. But what difference would it make? It would have been fun to be alive and watch him raise somebody from the dead. Now, the greatest thing he came into the world to do was to die for our sins, be buried, rise again on the third day, and pay the price that was required in order for us to receive the forgiveness of sins, to pay the price for the penalty of our sins that we could never pay. And so he came into the world to preach the gospel that men and women and children can be saved by putting their faith in him in his victory in his death his his death his burial and his resurrection the power of the gospel uh, the good news that it is the great news that it is and so he came as we're told here to preach good tidings uh, to the uh, the poor and so this speaks of the fact that the gospel makes uh, the poor person rich so rich that they wouldn't sell their life and all of the blessings that they have in Christ if you offered them the whole world. He has sent me to heal uh, the brokenhearted. The gospel heals the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The gospel brings liberty to the captives. It opens up the prison to those who are bound. In other words, Jesus doesn't just provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but he provides us with freedom from sin. To proclaim the acceptable year uh, of the Lord, the gospel, it lets people know that this is the acceptable year of the Lord, that we can be saved. You know, it's kind of a funny thing. You're ra- raised in the United States of America, as most of us were. So we have this Judeo-Christian ethic. We have a biblical foundation in our nation. And um, Even though it's waning in the last three, four generations of people, for the most part, you couldn't live in the United States of America for any real length of time without somebody preaching the gospel to you. Uh, sharing with you that you needed to be saved, and that this is the way to be saved. And so we hear about salvation, 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 and pretty soon people think, "Ah, oh, here come these Christians. They're going to put my arm around my back, and they're going to force me to try and get saved, and they're going to talk with me about it." And there's a dangerous loss of awe related to this that occurs. It's one of there's the blessings of being raised in a in a nation that has a Christian. Uh, heritage but there's a curse to it too and that people lose their sense of awe over the fact that i can be saved you go to a part of a world where people are dying under the weight of their guilt the bondage of their sin and you preach the gospel to them and they come in droves they can't believe that god would save them that there is this thing called salvation and we have to fight it in this culture and somebody may sit here tonight and you may not be saved and you've heard it over and over again. And your idea is, here these Christians, they just keep pounding me, they keep saying all of this. And you've lost your awe of, of the, the the great privilege that is yours to be able to hear the gospel and to be saved. Don't get hardened by the age. Don't get hardened by the history of this nation. It is a tremendous season in human history that we live in the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he talks in verse 2 also about the day and the day of the vengeance of our God, that the gospel warns about God's coming judgment. It declares that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just save us into something, everlasting life, forgiveness of sins and, and a relationship with God, but it saves us from something. It saves us from the judgment that our sins uh, deserve. To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn uh, in Zion, it's a comfort for those who mourn this gospel, and to give them beauty for ashes the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so this gospel, it gives, brings a joy into our lives, a hope into our lives that we wouldn't otherwise possess. And they shall be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so, again, as we saw this morning, this gospel allows us not only to be saved, but our for our roots to be able to go deep down into what is righteous, what is true, what is holy, and then to have our lives transformed as a result of it. What would you do without the Bible? You know, you got how many... I don't, don't raise your hand. How many kids today, how many people are, are? they call them ADD or ADHD or LSMFP or T or what? That was a different thing, wasn't it? That was lucky strikes. But, I mean, they got all of these things. And I'm not minimizing all of these initials and all these kind of things. But, you know, I... I some people just have really, really active minds. They never shut off. They never shut off. They never shut off. They never shut off. I don't know that they're supposed to be drugged. I don't know that they are. I don't know that they aren't. I'm not a medical doctor. All I know is that where in the world do you take your mind on planet Earth if it won't shut down, if you can't park at some place holy, if you can't park at some place safe, some place where the greatness of the activity of your mind doesn't even have to be a great mind. It just as an active mind gets to spend its day and its night exploring what is virtuous, what is good, what is beautiful, what is of God. And it's the gospel that allows a person to go from their mind and their life and their roots of every kind being tapped into darkness with no alternative. And Jesus came into the world to give us an alternative. And as our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength is not only given to the love of the Lord, but then to go deep into the things of Him. Oh, what a life it is that comes out of that. And what happens is we end up as one of these trees of righteousness. And that tree of righteousness ends up being something that brings God glory. Where they say, listen, I knew Kyle before he was saved. And I know what he is now. And what he was before brought no glory to God. But I think he brings a little glory to God now, at least by comparison. And that's what happens with this. It's a wonder. All of it's found in this glorious gospel. Where are you going to get me preaching again on all of this? Because I live all of This is my daily portion. This is a part of my history and yours too. And it excites me to read it and to see it again. And then in verse 10... The uh, Lord now with Isaiah uh, speaks of the future glory of uh, Israel again during the kingdom age. And so he broadens out from Jerusalem to Israel as a whole. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. And, uh, and they shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Remember... As you read the book of Revelation and you read about the, uh, the, the seal judgments and the bowl judgments and all of these judgments that are being poured out upon uh, the earth, and then there's going to be a great earthquake... At the time in which, at the three-and-a-half-year point where uh, the, uh, uh, Elijah and then one other witness with him is there witnessing to the Jews and so forth, an earthquake occurs upon the city, is virtually leveled. So the Jerusalem we see today is not going to be the Jerusalem that's going to be there at the end of the Great Tribulation period. It's going to be a ruin. Israel is going to be a ruin. In fact, the Battle of Armageddon is going to be fought right in the middle of Israel. It's like the central valley of Israel, the Jordan Valley. And there's a great army of 200 million that is going to come out of the east, out of Asia. The Antichrist is going to bring his very formidable military out of Europe. There is a great army that's going to come out of North Africa who is at this point fed up with the Antichrist and rebelling against him all three of those armies are going to come into that uh, valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, intent upon wiping each other out. But when Jesus comes from heaven at that moment, at his second coming, they will turn from their hatred of one another. There's only one they hate more than each other, and that is Jesus himself And they begin then to want to uh, fight against him, and he utterly wipes them out. But the land is going to be destroyed, but in this kingdom age, it's going to be built up, made beautiful again. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner uh, shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. There'll be such prosperity in the land once again, they'll need to hire servants in order to take care of all of the great blessings. That are occurring, But you shall be called the priests of the Lord and they shall call you the servants of our God and you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles and their glory shall be your boast. And so the Jewish people again better late than never. They will have a reputation. They will finally in this kingdom age step forward to fulfill God's call upon their life and that was to be a priest to the nations and a priest in the Old Testament had a twofold function to represent God before the people through a holy life and then to represent the people before God through intercession. They had thousands of years that God gave to them in order to live up to the glory of that calling. It's the same calling upon our lives as Christians because the Bible calls us a kingdom and priests, and so that's our twofold function: to intercede for the people around us, and then to represent God before the people around us. So they will finally, at this point in history, become priests. They will live up to uh, the the calling that God had upon their lives uh, all along that they failed to uh, live up to, and then God had to take uh, the Gentile nations and graft them in. And uh, and we're thankful for that. But we're thankful for happy endings here as well. And everybody will be happy for it. Not just uh, there won't be any kind of animosity between, oh, God loves the Jews and the Jews have stepped forward and they've got this wonderful relationship with the Lord as well. What about us poor Gentiles? There'll be none of that kind of stuff. God's got love for all of us. And we're all going to be very blessed in that environment. Indeed, of your shame you shall uh, instead of your shame you shall have double honor uh, and instead of confusion they shall rejoice in their portion therefore in their land they shall possess the double everlasting joy shall be theirs they won't be living the Jews won't and uh, under the under the condemnation of how they've kind of blown their opportunity in the past it'll be a time of yes we're we're doing it we love the lord jesus and um, and now we're living up to it and everything will, there won't be any regret. Everything will be lost in the glory of the moment, just as it should. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make uh, with them an everlasting Uh, covenant and their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. And so here we are as Gentiles grafted into the tree. And then as Paul wrote to the Romans and said, you know, how much more will the glory be when the Jews come and they actually fulfill their role in human history? And, uh, and so don't boast in, uh, you know, boast in the fact that you aren't the root as Gentile Christians. They're the root. We uh, uh, owe an awful lot to them, uh, the Jews, as a result of uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, as a result of providing us with a the Messiah, their bloodline, and so forth. And so everybody will be excited about how all of it turns out. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Here's Isaiah. He is he's hearing all of this about the future, things all around him are just completely dismal. He is a righteous man in the middle of a people who are supposed to be righteous, and yet they're being wicked. Judgment is coming. He sees it. It is so hard sometimes to be a Christian. You see the trouble coming way before everybody else sees it coming. You see it before the backslidden Christian sees it coming. You certainly see it before the world sees it coming. And so it's a very hard thing. Opened eyes are hard things to live with in this world. We get stuff that the world can't get. And we get stuff way ahead of people because of the Holy Spirit inside of us and our knowledge of the Scripture. But here is this where Isaiah is told of this wonderful history for the Jews, for Israel, for Jerusalem. All of it just excites him so much. And uh, he heads into this praise. And his pra- the praise not only represents his own heart, but it represents the, the heart of all of God's people at this great news that this, all of this has a happy ending. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful Uh, in my God. Uh, For, that's a reason word, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And so salvation will be, everyone is going to be, the, uh, the, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but salve, they'll be clothed with garments of salvation, and salvation will be the norm. People can rebel against God during that age. Salvation will be the norm. Righteousness will be the norm. And uh, people will be decked in salvation and in righteousness. And it will make people so beautiful morally, spiritually, that the only thing comparable to it, as Isaiah thinks about it, is the beauty of Uh, And the handsomeness of a bride and a groom on their wedding day, adorned with all of the ornaments and her with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown to it to spring, so the Lord shall cause righteousness and praise to spring forth, behold, uh, before all of the nations. Imagine that worldwide uninterruptedness all righteousness and all praise uh, all day and all night it's going to be something and that's just the kingdom age that's not the new heaven and the new earth i'm not putting it down but listen it gets even better after that now in uh, chapter 62 God continues to speak about his plans, blessed plans, uh, for Jerusalem. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And so Jerusalem will become the place from which righteousness shines out into the whole world. You shall be called by a new uh, name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. And that's what uh, Jerusalem was at this time. God was having to forsake her because of her sin nor shall your land be called any more be termed desolate, and it was becoming desolate because of their sin. He says, "In this season, the kingdom age, you shall be known as Hephzibah." So, nobody, I haven't dedicated a little girl yet called Hesvava, but uh, maybe that's coming. It's a beautiful name, though. It means, "My delight is in her." God says, "I'm going to rename you. My delight is in her." He wasn't delighted with him at the moment, but he said. That's going to change one day. And I'm going to rename your land Beulah, which means married. And this speaks of how committed God uh, will, will be uh, to, to Jerusalem and to Israel in that age. For the, light, the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride... So shall your God rejoice over you. He then goes on to speak about uh, the watchman. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and they shall never hold their peace day or night. Uh, you, shall, you who make mention of the Lord, do not uh, keep silent and give him no rest until he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all of the earth. Now when he talks about the watchman here, In this passage, he's not talking about uh, military men. Typically a watchman in that age was some kind of a military guard that would be on the wall. These watchmen that he's talking about here are speaking of intercessors, spiritual watchmen that God is encouraging here to keep on interceding. God has given these amazing prophecies to Isaiah uh, to the Jews, to us in the Old Testament. And now he calls upon these spiritual watchmen, encourages them now to keep on interceding for the fulfillment of these promises until they come to pass. Now, that's a funny thing, isn't it? Now, why would God make a promise and then establish intercessors to call on him? And it's a wonderful phrase here in verse 7 for prayer. And give him no rest till he establishes. a great way to think of, of prayer. I'm not going to give him any rest. He'd given them the promises. He's going to keep his promise. So why would he raise up intercessors to pray to him to keep the promise? Was it because he was going to forget that he had made the promise and then forget to fulfill the promise? That can't be the reason why. He wanted the intercessors to rise up And continue to pray for for the fulfillment of the promise because they were the ones who needed to remember that the promise was going to come. When God calls on it, so we should never, there's no need to take a, a trial that I'm in or a situation that I'm in and I find three promises of God in his word that deal with this situation. Those are my promises. This is yea and amen. This is what's going to have the final say in my situation. That's great. We hold on to that. But but as we pray and we say, now Lord, I pray that this what you've declared in your word will come to pass here. I pray that you do exactly what you've promised here in in doing that. It reminds us of, of the fact that the promise is coming. God knows he's going to keep the promise. I have trouble remembering the promises and that he's going to keep the promises. And prayer is a way of keeping us reminded of that fact. It's coming. The answer is coming. And God said, You keep asking me. You keep interceding me. You keep ransacking heaven through prayer until I fulfill this promise for you. But it's coming. But don't pray for my sake because you think I've got a bad memory. You pray because you need to stay encouraged between the time you discovered the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. The old saying is that prayer changes things. And the and the joke is it does change things, but the first thing that changes is us. And it needs to do that. And so that's what God is talking about here. He says, have the intercessors keep praying and keep praying and keep praying until it happens because it is going to happen beautiful passage and the lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength surely i will no longer give your grain as food to your enemies and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine i'm not going to allow you to be conquered and all of these things to be stripped away from you as was happening at the time of isaiah but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the lord and those who have uh, brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. And so, because in this kingdom age everything's going to be marked by righteousness, he isn't going to need to chasten them at all. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take up the out the stones. Lift up the banner for the peoples. And so, here is beautiful. Isaiah is speaking this again. How many years before Christ? 740, all right, what a teacher I am. Say it often enough, and they'll remember it just in the hopes that I don't say it again to them. But anyway, it is remembered nonetheless. And so here he calls on... Uh, at that time, Isaiah is so excited about the fulfillment of this. He knows God has promised it. It is going to happen. How many years? 740 years before Jesus was born. Now 2,000 years afterwards. This is yet in the future for us. We don't know how far out, but Isaiah says it's so true. This is the future of Jerusalem. So many people are going to come, Jews from all around the world, Gentiles from all around the world. Get the roads ready. Get the gates ready. All of it is going to happen. It's sure. Beautiful excitement at the promise of God and uh, faith in Isaiah's life. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him, and they shall, uh, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall uh, be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. And so the city renamed, uh, again, a third name given to it, uh, not a neglected city, but sought out, a desired city, people coming from all over the world, a city not forsaken. Let's uh, start stumble our way into verse uh, chapter 63 at least a little bit here. There's really kind of one point related to it. And um, I am determined to finish the book of Isaiah next Sunday. So um, unless I die. But anyway, so we'll see. 50 50. I mean the odds in Vegas, I don't know. But chapter 63 speaks of the day of the Messiah's uh, Vengeance—the day when, uh, in the day where the Lord's judgment uh, of Jesus, when He comes into the world at His second coming, and uh, and He He has that battle that we talked about, the battle of Armageddon. He comes from heaven itself at the end of the tribulation period to establish the kingdom age. He is going to make his way to Jerusalem. His foot is going to step down on the Mount of Olives, and He's going to enter into Jerusalem to begin to establish this kingdom. He makes his way to Jerusalem by way of the valley of Megiddo. And we talked about these three great armies that are there to fight one another. And uh, then they turn to fight him. And the bat- battle of Armageddon is, is where he wipes this army out. The imagery, as we're going to see in a moment, the imagery is of this man who is coming out of Edom. And uh, Isaiah sees him. And he, his, his garments are covered with blood. It looks like he has been stomping grapes. And in those days, they would make, have a great stone kind of vat. The grapes would be put in it. People would stomp with their feet. There would be a little opening on the side. And the wine would then uh, pour out on the side and so forth would begin the process. Reverently, I say, picture Lucy. Uh, with that Italian lady, and that's kind of how things were done in those days. But you couldn't really stomp the grapes or be a part of that process without then getting grape juice all over yourself. Red grape juice, and it would look like blood. When Jesus comes back at his second coming, and he meets this judgment out upon those three great armies. It is going to, in a sense, he's figuratively speaking, symbolically speaking, he's going to come into Jerusalem covered with blood, his garments, so to speak. He's just come from a scene of judgment. His wiping out of the three armies in that uh, battle of Armageddon, sometimes people think it's going to be this great battle. It's not going to be a battle. It's kind of like the unbattle of Armageddon. All he does is he says something, and they're wiped out. For the entire length of the valley of Jezreel, 164 miles, The Bible says that the blood is going to be to a horse's bridle. In other words, the bodies are going to be stacked up that high. That's how large those three armies will be that are coming to fight. We're talking about a 200 million army coming out of Asia itself alone. Just one of the three armies. And so this destruction is going to occur. And yet for Jesus to accomplish it will be no more significant than a person stepping on a grape. It is not much of a battle at all. But the battle is required in order to put an end to rebellion against God, against His Word, in order to establish the glory of what we've just read in these other chapters. It would be nice if there were, the whole world was full of good guys and not full of bad guys. And the world is only going to be filled with bad guys at the end of the tribulation period and they are uh, warranting His judgment and He comes Uh, And he judges them. Who is this, Isaiah says, who comes from Edom? And uh, so Jesus is pictured here as coming out of Edom. Uh, Edom and the Edomites were perennial uh, enemies of Israel. And so uh, Edom is is Messiah here. Jesus comes from the direction of Edom. He has this blood on his clothes, so to speak. And it symbolizes his judgment, not just upon Edom, but upon all the nations of the world that have been uh, enemies of righteousness and enemies of the Jews. So he says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozra? Bozrah was one of the main cities of Edom, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And so he sees this Jesus, so to speak, coming from him in this vision that he, that he's got. And he's, and he's majestically dressed and he's coming in this direction from Edom and he's got uh, this blood all over his clothes like he's been stomping grapes. And the Lord answers. Then Messiah answers the question of Isaiah: "Who is this?" He said, "I who I am who I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save." And so He's come in His righteousness. He's come to put an end of man's rebellion against uh, against Him in the world, and to save. Isaiah then asks another question: "Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress?" And here is the answer uh, of the Messiah. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. That's a significant phrase in verse 4, and the year of my redeemed has come. He comes back into the world. In order for the sake of his people, the redeemed. Uh, remember when Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find any faith? The world during the Great Tribulation period will be so hostile to Christian faith. Those that come to know the Lord during that period will be hunted, they will be martyred for their faith, and so forth. Jesus comes back at his second coming in order to mete out vengeance upon a world that is uh, martyring and slaughtering his people and for the sake of his redeemed. I looked and there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. And I have trodden down the peoples, uh, those that In rebellion to him, those that were persecuting his people in that tribulation period, I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So when Jesus comes uh, in his second coming, the only hope for mankind, the only hope for faith, the only hope for the righteous will be him. The situation in the world will be so dire morally and spiritually that if he did not interject himself once again in human history in this way, all of it would be lost. That's how evil, that's how dark the age will be. Isaiah, then in uh, verse 7, his response to the judgment of God uh, in, in all of this. He then uh, starts this beautiful meditation, this beautiful uh, prayer uh, concerning the mercy and the long suffering of God. I will mention the long suffering of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them, according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. And so he became their Savior. And all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And that's speaking about the angel on the night of the Passover who went through Egypt and wiped out the firstborn, where there wasn't the uh, blood of the Passover lamb on the door and lentils of the house. And, and so what Isaiah is doing here is he's looking back. He's hearing about... This judgment that is in man's future. And as he thinks about that judgment, rather than being horrified at the fact that God would come into the world and judge in such a strong way and in such a complete way, he rejoices in it. So we're very sophisticated, aren't we? Uh, we're very um, advanced as human beings. And so when we read about God's judgment and we read about these kind of things, people are horrified by it, even sometimes God's people. They're a little embarrassed about God being this way in the Old Testament. Jesus says a lot of things like this in the New Testament. But, you know, we've lived in a particular part of the world, the United States of America, we've got a lot of margins the rest of the world doesn't uh, have. You've got people that are living in parts of the world today where every day their thought is, come Lord and judge every bit of this because it's deserving of the fullness of his judgment. And so is the United States of America. But we we like to think we're so smart and we're so advanced. I'll tell you something, wait until we have a shortage of something. In this world, whether it's water or food or oil, and then you want to see how sophisticated people are? Look in the supermarkets when they run out of the, run out of toilet paper and what people will do to one another. When there's only so many flat screen TVs that are at this price at Christmas time. At Christmas time! Riots break out and they beat each other up in order to get the television at that, at that price. Never believe that we are any bit different than our predecessors in history. We just haven't been pushed to a place where all of that ugliness of the fall of Adam and Eve comes out. It is all there. And, it, and, and with enough provocation, wrong place, wrong time, wrong environment, evil permeating the world, this world can become a terrible place to live overnight and become a place... Where the only thinking uh, that, that the prayer of any thinking person will be, God come into it and bring your righteous judgment and put an end to it. Now, a guy like this says this. They say, "All right, that's the preacher up there. He gets worked up. You got to relax with him a little bit. This happens to him once in a while. Take the other eighty percent of the sermon, go home, but forget this." No. I stand by all of it. And again, we look at things where we are able to see things ahead of time. We we know what's in us. We know that it's only a miracle of God that we aren't still walking in the fullness of our flesh and more than a full liability in human history. We know what we're capable of. And we know what people are capable of as a result. I'm just telling you. That all of this nonsense, all of this pseudo-sophistication, it is garbage. And things can turn so quickly in this world that this world can become something where... The thought of God's judgment will not be something that we get horrified about and we want to cover our ears and we want to make apologies for God. It'll be our only hope in human history before all goodness is wiped out and all of God's people are destroyed. That's the world we live in, right under the veneer of the prosperity that once that's taken away, things get messy. Just look around the world where it is taken away. It is It is the law of the jungle. It is dog-eat-dog, and we are no different. So to me, when I read these kind of passages, I'm not ashamed of God. I'm not afraid. I know in my own heart, and I know related to the world that I live in, that where it can go and where it is going to go and where His judgment is going to be the best news a person can hear. And Isaiah, interestingly enough, knows it too, because when he hears about it, far from cringing over it, far from it being a front to him, he celebrates it. And what he's doing here in this passage is he is remembering where it required God's judgment and God's righteous wrath upon Egypt in order to secure the release of his people from Egypt. In other words, Isaiah says, in our own history as the Jewish people, you needed to be this in order to get us out of Egypt. And so he sees all of it. This is not something new that God is or something new that God does. He does it as he's required to. Breaks his heart. He's a father. He's created every single one of us, the scummiest one of us, the most sin-dominated, addicted person in this world. He is their creator, and he loves them. Breaks his heart to have to do this. But if he's forced to do it, he will do it, and he will be forced to do it. And Isaiah says, this isn't unprecedented in human history. It isn't even unprecedented in our own history. You had to do it to secure us from the Egyptians. And then he remembers in verse 11 that the same thing was required of God. God's judgment against the enemy of the Jews when they were trying to make their way through the wilderness and these enemies continued to try and destroy them when they tried to come near to the promised land and this various nations then tried to utterly wipe them out and God rose up in His judgment and He judged those people who were trying to destroy His people. Again, Isaiah looks at it biblically and he says this is something God has been forced to do and has done historically and I see that he will do it once again. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock where is he who has put his Holy Spirit within them who has led them by the right hand of Moses with his righteous arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as the horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down to the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Again, speaking of those wilderness wanderings. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation Holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength? Again, he's not horrified. He says, bring it on, Lord. Establish this kingdom that you're talking about. Do what you have to do with evil and with injustice in order to do it. The yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me are they restrained? Doubtless you are our Father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel, that is Jacob, does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From everlasting is your name, O Lord. Why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart, uh, hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it a little while, our adversaries have trodden down the sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. And what Isaiah is saying here, he's in the context of the Babylonians. Soon the Babylonians are going to conquer Israel and Jerusalem. They're going to go into captivity. And Isaiah is saying again, far from being offended at the might and the judgment of God, he is calling out in advance for God to express his judgment in delivering the Jews from the captivity that was at this point yet future when they were in bondage to the Babylonians. God, when this captivity becomes in such a place that it puts our danger and your work to bring a Messiah into human history through our bloodline, when that gets into danger, then bring your judgment upon the Babylonians to secure our release, to bring us back into the land so that your prophetic uh, picture and and story of redemption continues. And so again, he's not offended by uh, the judgment of God because uh, for all of the reasons that I've already said. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer.